This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Hyperbaric therapy isn't new. In fact, there's evidence of it being used in the 1600s. But it wasn't really until the early 1900s that clinicians began to understand the potential advantage of using hyperbaric oxygen for various medical conditions. It was eventually refined by the military for issues related to deep sea diving and aeronautics, and it's now being used for a variety of medical problems. As primary care providers, most of us have had very little experience with the field of hyperbaric medicine. However, there are likely some patients in our practice who may benefit from hyperbaric therapy. Here to educate us today on the potential uses of hyperbaric therapy is Dr. Gary Toops, a physician in the Division of Preventive Occupational and Aerospace Medicine at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. He currently practices in our hyperbaric facility here at Mayo. Gary, welcome. Well, thank you for having me, Dr. Chutka, and uh, hopefully we can uh, shed some light on this mystery that is hyperbaric medicine. Well, you know, as I looked over your uh, CV, I was amazed at how, despite your young age, what a fascinating life you've led so far. Compared to mine, I'm, mine's <laughs> very boring. Uh, in addition to completing a family medicine residency, you also had a fellowship, U.S. Air Force in hyperbaric medicine. You've been a diving instructor. You're a retired colonel with the U.S. Air Force, having accumulated over 600 hours of combat as a B-52 pilot in Operation Desert Storm. So... First of all, thank you for your service to our country, and I think we could spend the next half hour just talking about fascinating stories you've had <laughs> flying B-52s, but I guess we need to talk about hyperbaric therapy. So talk a little bit about those of us who don't do much in terms of hyperbaric therapy, what actually is it? All right, so the definition of hyperbaric oxygen therapy is the intermittent breathing of 100% oxygen in a treatment chamber, pressurized to a pressure greater than sea level. So you're using the chamber as a delivery device, using oxygen as a drug for the physiologic and pressure effects uh, uh, that you get. And this is used to treat uh, certain conditions that have been shown to respond to hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Was some of the initial use used in uh, deep sea diving and uh, changes in, in pressure? Absolutely. Uh, the uh, it was initially used, as you said, there was a clergyman, a British clergyman by the name of Henshaw back in the 1600s who built a device called a domicilium. And they used, back, they used the technology of the day, used uh, bellows and uh, valves and things to raise the pressure in this small room. And he treated maladies that we probably wouldn't recognize as valid today. Uh, then fast forward to the Industrial Revolution, actually in the mid-1800s. And we started people putting people at work under pressurized environments, divers in the sea. And not only divers in the sea, but people in a dry pressurized environment, digging bridge footings and building dams in devices called caissons that were pressurized to keep the water out. And what they noticed was that when people went down in these things for hours at a time and tried to come back out uh, without any, any scheme for decompression, they got acutely ill. There might have been some minor skin symptoms or um, uh, some joint pains all the way to substantial or uh, profound neurological or, or cardiovascular embarrassment or complete collapse and death. Very high mortality rate in those people. 
they finally figured out that if you put them back in the pressurized environment, because they noticed that when people been, went back to work and had minor symptoms, they felt better. So they put them back in a pressurized environment and then depressurized them slowly. Many of these people got better or were cured. So that was the advent of decompression therapy in which the treatment gas was air, and that was in the 1800s. Uh, fast forward to 1937, a physician from Milwaukee by the name of Edgar End decided that oxygen would be a much better treatment gas, and he was right. It is a much better treatment gas. And since that time, uh, we've used uh, hyperbaric oxygen exclusively in the treatment of decompression illness, and it's also evolved into the treatment of other maladies uh, and conditions with hyperbaric oxygen. Hmm. So we probably don't see a lot of decompression illness here in Minnesota. So what are the uses that uh, you're using this uh, device for now? Well, it somewhat depends on where you are in the country. Uh, if you're at a community-based facility doing mostly outpatient uh, hyperbaric medicine, you're going to see use it for uh, the treatment of chronic non-healing wounds of various kinds. Not all chronic non-healing wounds, but some chronic non-healing wounds respond to it, especially those that are related to uh, microvascular problems with diabetes or uh, radiation therapy uh, in which you have this tissue that's uh, hypovascular, hypocellular, hypoxic. Uh, it actually helps to uh, cause some angiogenesis in that tissue and help you know, help uh, create a better uh, supply of, of blood and oxygen to finally heal those tissues. Uh, also, um, uh, you'll see it in the treatment of uh, other radiation-related illnesses like radiation cystitis, radiation proctitis, very good evidence that this is helpful in a lot of patients nowadays. Uh, another one that you'll see, uh, particularly in the outpatient setting, is the treatment of um, uh, chronic refractory um, uh, osteomyelitis. Uh, it's very helpful. It helps the action of antibiotics. Uh, it helps when the surgeons go to debride. It helps to demarcate the bone. So it's used as an adjunctive therapy along with antibiotics and surgical debridement. Uh, in the, in the uh, hospital-based setting like we are here in Rochester, uh, we see all those patients, and in addition, we get cases from the emergency department and from the inpatient services. So we will see a fair number of cases of carbon monoxide poisoning uh, during the year, has an affinity for human hemoglobin 250 times that of oxygen. So it very quickly uh, uh, bumps the oxygen off the hemoglobin molecule and is very hard to get off. You have to, uh, and using hyperbaric oxygen by, uh, you know, with the sheer volume and pressure of, of, uh, of hyperbaric oxygen, you're able to offload that CO a lot quicker. Uh, under hyperbaric conditions, uh, the half-life of CO on human hemoglobin is about 23 minutes at three atmospheres. And if you're breathing just surface air, it's 310 minutes. So you offload it much faster, much more efficiently. There are other beneficial effects of hyperbaric oxygen in that case. Um, and to include uh, the prevention of delayed neurologic sequela down the road, people uh, uh, apparently recover and then get sick again days or weeks later. Uh, other things that we use, uh, we see a lot of uh, referrals here at Mayo Clinic Rochester on, uh, for surgical patients that have a compromised flap. The surgeon finishes the closure, and they look at it, and they go, I just don't like the way this looks. That, that closure doesn't look good. It's dusky. I'm worried about the, uh, uh, about the viability of this flap. They'll give us a call, and we can 
provide hyperbaric support for that flap in the long term so that hopefully we enhance its uh, chances of survival and uh, hopefully lead to less uh, invasive procedures down the road. Um, so other things that we see that we typically won't see in the community, <clears throat> other emergent conditions like uh, central retinal artery occlusion, that's a fairly new indication where people, they, they have painless loss of vision in one eye. It's like someone draws a curtain over it. Um, if we can treat them within hours, we can often save at least some of their vision. It's very rare you're going to save all of their central vision, but they may have enough out here to count fingers or see motion coming from that side if we could treat them early enough. And uh, we have a couple going right now for sudden sensory neural hearing loss that we treat along with our ENT uh, colleagues, and we've had some pretty good results recently, people getting a significant amount of their hearing back, maybe getting to the point where a hearing aid is, uh, is a feasible use for them. So a variety of conditions that I see in my practice of primary care, so there's some potential use for this uh, device in a lot of what we do. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, when I was early in my career, I uh, did a lot of nursing home work, uh, we would see patients in with chronic non-healing ulcers. And I suspect many of those patients, this is before we had hyperbaric chamber here, I suspect many of those patients would have been a candidate for hyperbaric therapy. Many are. Uh, it, you have to select the patients carefully because not every chronic non-healing wound is a result of hypoxia. If the wound is a result of, say, uh, a vasculitis or a neoplastic process or the patient simply isn't taking in enough nutrition to lay down the protein to heal the wound, no amount of hyperbaric oxygen is going to help. But in the, or uh, another one is if there is large vessel disease, say there's, um, uh, there's blockage in uh, maybe a vessel in the hip or down in the, uh, in the thigh that needs either bypass or stenting, um, hyperbaric oxygen wouldn't be helpful for that. They, they need the hands of a surgeon. Uh, but if the disease process is microvascular, like as in the case of a diabetic foot mm -hmm. or in the case of, of a wound in an area that's been irradiated, uh, hyperbaric oxygen actually upregulates uh, uh, growth factors like vascular endothelial-derived growth factor actually causes the ingrowth of small vessels. Um, so if other things are corrected and the nutrition uh, uh, picture is, is good, yes, it can be very, very helpful in those patients. So given that a variety of patients may benefit from hyperbaric therapy, how accessible are the chambers throughout the state, throughout the country? We have, well, we have a pretty large setup here in, uh, in Rochester, and uh, we can explain the, the, the type of setup that we have a little bit later. Um, it, again, it really depends on where you are. If you're in kind of a rural setting, you may have to travel quite a ways to get to a place that, uh, that can provide hyperbaric oxygen therapy. And also add to that that not every facility who provides hyperbaric oxygen is an accredited facility that treats for approved indications. Sometimes you'll find people that will treat uh, non-approved indications, which are, some of them are quite questionable. I won't go into a mm -hmm. lot of them right now, maybe a little bit later, but uh, um, you, have to, you have to, really you should look for an accredited facility if you, if you can find one. But some patients do have to travel quite a ways to mm -hmm. get to one. And you've gone through a fellowship in hyperbaric therapy. Yes. Are others who are administering hyperbaric therapy all fellowship trained? We, we have uh, six physicians currently who are uh, consultants in our department. Two of us are board certified. Uh, I'm, the one who, I'm the only one who's been through a fellowship. 
uh, to practice hyperbaric medicine, you have to be you have to have a baseboard specialty, and at the very minimum, you have to to uh, do an accredited course or an approved course in uh, in hyperbaric medicine. Generally, a forty hour course or one week course will suffice, and then you have to have some local supervision to make sure that you know that you're you're trained to mm-hmm. the standards of the institution. Um, and then you, you get experience uh, on the job. There are other levels of, uh, of, of uh, uh, attaining uh, credentials in, somewhere in between there, uh, but those are kind of the two extremes. As I was doing my research on hyperbaric therapy, I came across several things on the Internet which interested me. Apparently, you can buy these chambers for personal use. That sounds a little frightening. It, it is. In a large accredited facility like ours, we have to pay very strict attention to safety and fire uh, um, uh, regulations and protocols. Uh, there's, there are volumes and volumes that we have to abide by. And if you take someone who's buying one of these uh, perhaps less, uh, less high quality chambers and, and, and using them in a non-accredited setting or using them in the home, these things are potentially bombs, and there are the new. You can search the news and find some very unfortunate and uh, spectacular failures of some of these chambers. Uh, I, I would not recommend uh, the the average person buying one and using one at home. Yeah. Talk a little bit about the chambers that are available. There are two basic types, uh, and we actually have both here at Mayo Clinic Rochester. There's a multi-place chamber, which, as the name suggests, holds multiple people. So we have a three-lock multi-place chamber with two main treatment chambers that can hold up to six patients apiece and an inside attendant, generally a nurse. Uh, It can can hold either six seated patients, three patients on carts, some combination thereof. We can treat ICU patients in there, up to ventilated patients, uh, but we would only put that one patient in a chamber at one time because they need all the attention. And they go in there with an ICU nurse and a respiratory technician. So that's the kind of level of care that we can provide in our multi-place chamber. We also have a monoplace chamber, which, as you might surmise, holds one person under most circumstances, and I'll explain that in a minute. Uh, the monoplace chamber, as opposed to the multi-place chamber, it's pressurized, the multi-place chamber is pressurized with air, and the Patients breathe oxygen under a hood. In the monoplace chamber, the chamber is pressurized with oxygen, and they, and they breathe the chamber atmosphere, except when they need to take an air break, we give them a, a, a mask. The, it doesn't matter what the patient is surrounded by, only what the patient is breathing, because the interface is in the lungs. Physiologically, the, the treatment is identical. In the monoplace chamber, like I said, normally one patient with a chamber operator on the outside, uh, in the case, though, of small children and toddlers, we will often put them in with a parent. It's easier to treat them in the monoplace chamber with a parent than it is often to put them in the multiplace chamber because adult equipment doesn't work well on kids. They're just not built for it. We can modify certain things, but that's typically how we treat uh, toddlers and small children. Are there any health problems that would prohibit a patient from undergoing hyperbaric therapy? The kind of universal no-go condition would be an untreated pneumothorax. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, the risk is that when you depressurize the chamber, this volume of trapped gas will actually expand and possibly convert to a tension pneumothorax and uh, cause a life-threatening event. 
uh, somewhat related. If you have a patient with severe COPD and evidence of peripheral blebs, that has been described in the literature where one of these peripheral blebs has ruptured and caused a tension pneumothorax on ascent. So I'd be very, very uh, hesitant to put someone in the chamber for that. Uh, one that I actually see more commonly, remember I said that uh, one of the effects of, of hyperbaric oxygen is that it causes peripheral vasoconstriction. Mm -hmm. So if you cause peripheral vasoconstriction, you're increasing peripheral vascular resistance, increasing afterload. So now you have a patient with heart failure pushing against increased afterload. It can worsen heart failure to the point where you can get actually get acute or flash pulmonary edema in the chamber, something we'd like to avoid. So we can treat a lot of patients with heart failure, but they have to be optimized and we have to be very comfortable. And, and it, we evaluate them every day, auscultate the lungs, make sure they're not getting wet. Mm -hmm. So those are some of the things that I would be hesitant about uh, putting people in the chamber with. Um, there are a few, if, if the patient has uh, an acute upper respiratory infection, they're at, they're at risk for eustachian tube dysfunction. Most of those things are pretty minor. Mm -hmm. So you're putting healthy attendance in with the patients. Correct. Um, are there adverse effects to hyperbaric therapy? Are healthy attendants at risk for having any problems from this? Right. The, the attendants, for the most part, breathe the chamber atmosphere in the multi-place chamber, which is air. Generally, at the pressures that we treat, uh, if you look at the, uh, uh, the established dive tables from the U.S. Navy, at the pressure we treat and the time that we put them in, they're at very, very low risk, but they are actually at increased risk for decompression sickness. We tend to be very liberal with uh, giving them extra oxygen at the end of treatment, and, uh, and we do have to consider that. If the, if the attendant calls me after hours and says, Doc, I have uh, this pain in my knee that wasn't there before, I have to take it seriously because it is the, the, statistically, it is possible they could have decompression sickness. So, yes, mm -hmm. they are at risk for it. The patient is not because the patient breathes oxygen and doesn't take on extra nitrogen, but the inside attendant is. So somebody is in the uh, chamber. What's a typical length of treatment that they stay in there? Most of our treatments run uh, under two hours, about an hour and 50 minutes, and that's going to be for wound care or radionecrosis. Most of, most of our, our treatments run just under two hours. Okay. Uh, now, that being said, if you're treating someone for, say, a, a gas embolism, whether it's caused uh, by a procedure or caused by diving or a decompression sickness, then you have to use the U.S. Navy treatment tables, which can run from over four hours to just under eight hours. I've treated a number of people with those when I was in the military. It's grueling for both the patient and the staff. It's, it's a long treatment. I would think so. Well, you've been doing this for some time. What success stories do you recall? Um, well, back when I was in the military and I did mostly diving medicine, it was very gratifying to put someone in who was paralyzed. I've, I've had, I put someone in who was, who was paraplegic and then they walked out the chamber at the end of the therapy. It's, it's wonderful and it's great stuff. Um, uh, here lately, I've had people uh, for, who I put in for uh, sensory neural hearing loss that have gotten a significant amount of hearing back. Uh, it's great when we see some of these chronic wounds go to heal and that patient can, uh, can use a prosthesis, go on to use a prosthesis and, and improves their quality of life. So those are some of the things that we see. Okay, finally, 
Why don't you summarize a few key points related to hyperbaric therapy that our listeners might be interested in? It's, uh, again, uh, I'm hoping today that we can pull back this, uh, this curtain of uh, mystery behind it. Please don't be afraid if you're, uh, if you're thinking that a person might benefit from hyperbaric oxygen therapy and you're not entirely sure. Uh, certainly any of the conditions that we talked about today, I would love to have a consult from anyone who's out there. You can call up the consultant on call or just put in a consult. We'll be glad to call you back on it. Uh, that's, uh, and the main thing is, um, uh, we like to, uh, uh, showcase our facility. A lot, there's a lot of mystery about where people are sending their patients and the conditions they're going to be exposed to. We would invite people to come down for a visit or a tour just to see where it, where it is and what it looks like. Yeah, I've seen the chamber. It looks like a miniature submarine. Yeah, it's, it's, acts like it's very, and, and quite honestly, it's, uh, it's state of the art. It, it is a, uh, I've, uh, treated patients in some very large and some very small chambers, and this is my favorite one so far. Well, we've been discussing hyperbaric therapy with Dr. Gary Toops, a physician in hyperbaric medicine at the Mayo Clinic. Gary, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us. Well, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Chaka, for inviting me in today. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week.